0: welcome to aging matters care and comfort that surrounds you a service of transitions life care on news radio 680 WPTF good Saturday evening to you Jason Kong here with Cooper Linton Cooper how are you I am doing great on this crazy week with winter weather
1: in the in the past I don't know we're ready to have spring
0: yeah it seems like we get six days of somewhat regular moderate temperatures and then one day of just wackiness
1: yeah, yeah this past Wednesday it snowed
0: yeah a little bit bizarre that uh, keeping mother nature keeping us on our toes but that's uh that's what she does another person who keeps us on our toes the lovely Nicole Cleggett did I get it right
2: <laughs> you're gonna worry about that for weeks I'm never going to tell you now I
0: spent the whole week did in you, the mirror did you, practicing did you and uh,
2: I think you did I, pretty well okay I still have to do it right, too, because I keep introducing myself to folks as Nicole Bruno.
0: Well, you've been doing that for a while. for a long time. (laughs) Got to get that muscle memory. Leaving
2: voicemail, signing my name wrong. It's just going to be an evolutionary process. Yeah,
0: I'm, I'm just now writing the right year on my checks, so... Uh, I'm I'm impressed that you've made that sort of progress already.
2: Oh, so glad to be here.
0: Yes, yes. Well, we've got a great show lined up today, and we've got uh, some pretty interesting topics lined up. We're going to get into uh, the world of veterans and the world of volunteers as well. So, Cooper, uh, where do you want to start? Where should we start tonight? Well, we're actually uh, privileged to have a colleague of ours come
1: on the show because we wanted to talk about issues related to veterans' care. Uh, in particular end-of-life veterans care, which we've come to learn is a little different for veterans than it is for non-veterans. And uh, so we've invited Mark Philbrick, who's with Transitions Life Care, to come on. And, and, and Mark is uh, able to do a lot of things. He's able to talk with us about veterans programs and also educational programs that are offered. Uh, he does a lot of professional training of other of uh, nurses and nurse practitioners and aides and even physicians who come to the trainings to learn more about end-of-life services. And in particular, we want to talk about veterans care. Uh, Roughly one in every four people who are going through hospice care today are a veteran. Mm -hmm. And that means they have a different history and a different context for end-of-life than people who are not. Uh, And so we really wanted Mark to join us and talk a little bit about volunteer opportunities, but also the We Honor Veterans program uh, that addresses specific needs of people who have served in the military in the past. Mark, welcome to the show, and thank you for coming on. And we just want to understand a little bit more about veteran services.
3: Great. Well, thank you for having me. The veterans program, We Honor Veterans, was founded by the collaboration of the Veterans Administration, along with the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, NHPCO. Um, That's the
1: National Trade Association that
3: represents hospices across the country. Yeah, that's right. Um, They realized that veterans were a special niche within the end-of-life care arena, um, mainly because they have a culture and uh, experience that's unique to that specific population. Uh, for example, stoicism is a big part of the We Honor Veterans program, um, realizing that many of these men and women who were in the different uh, branches of service, they were to buck up, don't complain, and so uh, it really has an impact on how they face end of life. That's part of that culture that gets baked in,
1: really starting
3: at, at basic training. Absolutely.
1: And so they start off with that, and it carries
3: long past when they've left the service. That's true. There's 21 million veterans living in the United States right now. And as we see them aging into end-of-life care, the different types of service, the different experiences they had, and also the different wars that are represented – we're at the tail end of the World War II veterans, and now we have Korean War veterans. And the largest group, the Vietnam veterans, are coming into the aging population, averaging over 65 years old. And there's 7.9 million Vietnam veterans that now are entering that arena of end-of-life care.
2: So it's very typical for people as they're nearing end-of-life, you know, even if you don't have a life-limiting illness, you know, towards your 80s and 90s, you start doing what they call life review. You start sort of wanting to tell your stories and, and, and reminiscing about things in the past. But a lot of these veterans, particularly I would suspect the Vietnam veterans, have kind of kept a lot of that locked inside. So what are some of the things that you do at Transitions Life Care to help prepare the families and the clinical staff to receive that information without, uh, I guess, sometimes judgment and really help that person process that so they can actually rest in peace.
3: It is, uh, it's true not only with the Vietnam veterans, but all veterans. I had the personal experience with my father, um, who is a World War II veteran. He was in the Navy. He was in five invasions in the South Pacific. And growing up with my dad, the only thing I knew about his service was in the closet there was a Japanese rifle and a samurai sword never talked about it and it wasn't until the last week of life where I was doing life review with my dad and I asked if he wanted to talk about the war and he never wanted to talk about it he was 89 years old and the last week of life he finally woke up one morning and said okay I'm gonna tell you my story and he began to share some of the traumatic things that he went through and landing marines at Iwo Jima and Okinawa and Saipan and um, just a lot of the guilt they had, the the horrors of what they've experienced, and they keep those in. And so we use veterans who've been through similar experiences to volunteer to share their stories. Because many families we send these veteran volunteers to, it's the first time they've heard the stories from their loved ones.
2: So I guess one of the things that I'm um, kind of wondering about is... You know, if if you're a family member and you start to hear some of these stories, what is the best thing to do if it starts to become emotional for that mm-hmm. person? Um, and and how do you be how do you, how are you, how can you be supportive?
3: The number one thing people want is just someone to listen, without judgment, without comment, no
2: opinions, <laughs>
3: no opinions, um, and let them share their story
2: because mm-hmm.
3: there is many times guilt or shame or um, Regret
2: mm-hmm.
3: for what they did. Sometimes
2: they want forgiveness.
3: They do. Mm-hmm. And we see in the, the Vietnam population where very different than World War II. My mm-hmm. dad volunteered. He had two kids. He didn't have to go, but he said it was his duty.
2: Mm-hmm. My father did the up. same. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm.
3: And unfortunately, with the experience of many of the Vietnam veterans who were drafted into this and then were called baby killers when they came yep. back, mm-hmm. they were ashamed.
2: Mm -hmm. sometimes
3: that they were in the military it was a whole different culture not welcoming them back into Mm -hmm. society but really shaming them as they came
2: back so they didn't get the heroes welcome that a lot of our veterans get today absolutely which i think made a huge impact on. it did
3: and we also uh know that post-traumatic stress is a big issue with many veterans um the big difference for example world war ii veterans It was estimated that they serve about 20 to 40 days of active military service in combat. Mm -hmm. And then they would get like a two-week leave. Mm -hmm. With the Vietnam veterans, with the helicopters, they were able to go from hotspot to Mm hotspot. And so they've only served active duty maybe a year or two. But of that, over 200 days, Mm -hmm. consecutive days were in combat, going from one hotspot to another. So it had a completely different impact on those that were on the front lines.
2: So I think one of the challenges we have just in general is, is really being able to support those veterans today. I mean and I think that's something that you hear a lot about in the news media. You know how do we do a better job in supporting veterans and integrating them back into the community and I think it's a huge challenge and to your point I think uh, we really need to consider kind of what they experienced and perhaps what war they were in too because the approach may be a little different.
3: Absolutely. Each of the different uh, theaters of battle had different issues. They also had different types of medical impact Mm -hmm. on those populations. For example, the Korean War, many of those suffered cold injuries. Mm -hmm. Where the Vietnam veterans, a lot of um, medical injuries were related to Agent Orange and some of the things they were
0: exposed to. That is the voice of Mark Philbrick with Transitions Life Care, and we will continue our discussion on veterans and end-of-life care in just a bit. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. You are listening to Aging Matters: Care and Comfort That Surrounds You, a service of Transitions Life Care. Here on News Radio six eighty WPTF, Jason Kong here with you, alongside Cooper Linton and Nicole Cleggett. Um, I know. I know, Nicole. I'm working on it, okay? I, I'm going to get used to it. It just doesn't feel natural yet, but we're getting there. We're getting there. Our guest this evening is Mark Philbrick with Transitions Life Care, and we're having a really fascinating conversation about veterans and end-of-life care. And, Cooper, uh, just before we ended last segment, there was uh, a, a popular term, I guess more popular term, that Mark used that kind of uh, lit your eyes up a little bit or uh, something that you really wanted to focus on here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We, we talk about post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD as it's so commonly called. But Mark, in the medical literature, that didn't exist back in the World in World War II, mm-hmm. uh, didn't exist in the Korean War days, but yet it's a very common phrase today, uh, and we're using that term kind of retrospectively to apply to people that have never had that phrase applied to them in maybe their entire medical experience uh, after war. Where does that come into play? How, do, how does this new phrase fit into the the lexicon of caring for veterans
3: well that's a really good point in fact it had an evolution going back to world war one where shell shock was often the term that was used for people who had from tra- traumatic um, incidents and then it sort of morphed into battle fatigue was another thing you would hear of in world war ii and korean war Um, but it had a huge impact where people involved in active combat often would compartmentalize in their brain Mm -hmm. trying to wall off
2: lock it down
3: lock it down Mm -hmm. and we see now what's emerging is many of these vietnam veterans who have really not had any experience of post-traumatic stress in an active way, once they're done, you know, having a job, raising their kids, into retirement, and facing end of life, as as Nicole mentioned, with that whole life review, whether someone's asking you the question or your own heart and mind are asking those questions. The box opens up. (laughs) The box opens up, they can't keep the lid on, and that's when a lot of this stuff comes out. And what helps the healing process often is having a brother-in-arms or a sister-in-arms just to hear the story that they are opening up and sharing from their heart something where they trust the other person understands.
2: You know, I've had a lot of experience working with veterans throughout my career as a social worker, and one of the ones that I remember most, and you see this often in the dementia population, um, but one of the ones I remember is, you know, for whatever reason, this one vet, he took to me. And I don't know what I reminded him of. But every single day, first thing I would get into work, he would call me into this little parlor. And you know he would say we'd have to turn the lights down because he was for some reason when it was darker, he was more comfortable. And he would sit there and he would tell me his story like it was the first time he ever told it and he would cry. And it was just like, Every single day it was just repeating it because, of course, he couldn't remember that he'd ever shared it. But he would desperately look for me because mm-hmm. he said he would have to tell me something. And then every single day I had to support him like it was happening to him for the mm-hmm. first time. So I can well imagine, you know, family caregivers who have loved ones who have an Alzheimer's and dementia, these folks sometimes are experiencing it again as if it's happening at that time. I've seen in adult daycare centers, if there's a loud noise You know, the the folks with dementia will suddenly get down on the ground because they're Mm -hmm. scared that there's a bomb going off. Or if they're sleeping, they're sometimes, you know, talking in their sleep. And so I think definitely supporting folks with Alzheimer's and dementia that are veterans, it adds a whole other level of um, complexity for sure.
3: And that's a really good point because now, approximately one in three people facing end of life have some form of dementia, Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's being a major problem. form a dementia so it, it is really common for us to face that mm-hmm. where their recent memories are gone but those deep-seated memories and traumas still reside
2: and they and they just don't have the ability to process it so it's just repeated like a broken record over and absolutely.
3: over absolutely and we never quite know what's going to trigger it for any one mm-hmm. individual sometimes right sometimes it will be a
2: smell yep. sometimes
3: it will be a sound or
2: seeing something on tv exactly mm-hmm.
3: i um read of uh somebody who was in desert storm and going through Fallujah, running over children's bodies in the Humvee he was in. Mm-hmm. So he hit a speed bump when he came mm-hmm. home, and it just set off that mm-hmm. trauma yep. to him. So speaking of Desert Storm and the more recent
1: wars that we're actually still involved in, uh, how does that begin to play in this? Because we're thinking you know, that all the people that are veterans that we treat in hospice care or palliative care are old, but but they're not. No, and are you seeing differences in the way that uh, the wars in the Middle East that started in in the nineties and have um, been off and on, but more on than off for the last twenty years? How how is that playing into this?
3: Well, I do think there's more. Number one, more awareness of this, so people are identifying post traumatic stress and some of these other. Uh, Challenges earlier. I think the culture in our country is different toward veterans, much more honoring, respecting, wanting to help veterans in a special way, which has really been, I think, um, hugely supportive for people facing these challenges. One of the things that has been in the news 22 veterans a day commit suicide. We lost about 54,000 soldiers during the Vietnam War over 10 years. Over 100,000 had committed suicide since the war. So these traumas are deep, and they continue to... The fatalities
1: continued to mount up long after the cessation of hostilities. Absolutely. So you've talked about volunteers, um, uh, brothers in arms, sisters in arms, participating in this program. What are some of the functions that those volunteers actually do?
3: There's several. One is a listening ear. So we have our social workers and nurses who are seeing the patients on admission to hospice. Every patient and family is asked, did this loved one serve in the military? And regardless of what branch or what role, that's an important thing. So we identify on admission, those who have had service to the military and then offer an honoring ceremony. We want to make sure every veteran is honored and thanked for their service, so we have a We Honor Veterans program where a veteran will go to a home or a nursing home or assisted living. Wherever that hospice patient resides, they'll listen to the person's story. They will do a pinning ceremony. We pin them with an American flag. We have a certificate of appreciation for serving our country, and many families will gather the whole family together for this because sometimes it's the first time people have been thanked formally, for their service, and it's very meaningful for the families to, to see and appreciate. And also, we have seen the children and grandchildren want to know more about that loved one's military service. May
1: open the door within the family, that, that ceremony, right. and that volunteer may actually open the door to some family communication and healing that would mm-hmm. not have otherwise happened.
3: So, our veteran volunteers are a listening ear, um, someone that has the understanding at a deep level appreciating the service for another veteran, and are often welcomed openly by these families.
1: So are these veteran volunteers given special training? I mean, it seems like we're putting them in a very special circumstance.
3: Yeah, they do. Um, We have a couple levels of this. There are some veterans who just wanna do these honoring ceremonies, which are typically 15 to 20 minutes in a patient's home. So we walk them through what the ceremony is, and we prepare them to do that and listen. Uh, Interestingly enough, about 95% of those ladies and gentlemen who volunteer to do this honoring ceremony will also go through our family service training and volunteering where they have to go through additional training because they want to revisit that veteran and provide additional emotional support or family support. So when we come back, I'd like for us to explore some of the other volunteer opportunities because you've talked about
1: You started touching on some of those, and I think we need to spend a little time exploring what that may mean and how volunteers actually function within hospice. I think there's some misconceptions and misunderstandings
0: about it, and I think you can probably illuminate them for us. That'd be great. We'll do just that. Our guest this evening is Mark Philbrick with Transitions Life Care, and you are listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. And you can find more about Transitions Life Care at transitionslifecare.org. You're listening to News Radio 680 WPTF. News Radio 680 WPTF you're listening to Aging Matters care and comfort that surrounds you a service of transitions life care Jason Kong here alongside Cooper Linton and Nicole Cleggett our guest this evening is Mark Philbrick with Transitions Life Care and we're talking uh, a lot about veterans we've uh, we've covered that uh, pretty extensively and uh, if you missed that you can go online to wptf.com head over to the Aging Matters section and you can hear our full interview uh, with Mark in case you missed anything. But, uh, Cooper, we left off talking a little bit uh, about volunteers. And I'm sure that has perked up the ears of some of our listening audience. The WPTF audience is just a, a very giving and engaged in the community audience. So uh, how I guess we can dive into how do people become volunteers and what's available to them? Well, right. And, and and if they
1: have an interest in I think there's some misconceptions. One is that all hospice care is provided by volunteers. Uh, but that's really – at one time was accurate, but it's really not anymore. And Mark, do you want to kind of jump into addressing that misconception?
3: Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, when the hospice movement first started, there was really no reimbursement for hospice services through our Medicare or insurance programs. So for many years it was completely done by volunteers. Some of those volunteers were healthcare professionals and others were just interested families. Um, now hospice is the only medicare program that requires the involvement of volunteers in fact in order for us to remain compliant as a hospice at least five percent of our uh, care hours have to be provided through volunteers and we far exceed that at transitions life care. we do and we currently have about 410 volunteers and that sounds like a lot of people and it is <laughs> um, but we also manage between 550 and 580 patients a day on our hospice program, and they need support of volunteers. But it's not just patient care volunteers, we also have roles all out throughout our organization. Like what? Well, the first segment is what we call family service volunteers. These are people who actually would go and visit a patient and a family to help provide support. Often it's called respite support, where the family just needs a break to go. They made it go to their own doctor appointment. I know in my case, I had my father in my home under hospice for three months. And I was caring for him around the clock. And I had a volunteer that came a couple of hours twice a week. And I could take a hike in the woods. I could clear my head. I could go grocery shopping. And it was a huge relief for me to have respite for myself in order to continue having the energy to to continue to serve we have vigil volunteers we don't want anyone to die alone vigil I'm they'll sure. vigil with the patient the last 24 hours of life so our volunteers will literally sit in four-hour shifts at the patient bedside primarily this is in nursing homes where a family may be remote and they don't have the ability to be present when someone is in their final hours of life and so are we asking them to do hands-on care no hands-on care involved It's the presence of a person to be there. They may hold the person's hand. They may read to the person or sing to the person. um, But basically, just a loving, caring presence. One person being with another. Absolutely. We also use volunteers for very practical things. We like helping clean around the house or helping transport a person who's still able to walk who needs to get to their doctor's appointment. We use volunteers who just deliver things to people that may be that they need something picked up and delivered to their home. Um, So we have family service volunteers that have direct patient contact as far as visiting families. The second part of that is office volunteers, administrative volunteers. There's literally dozens of tasks behind the scenes that need to be done. Uh, One example of this is every family gets 13 months of bereavement support when their loved one dies. And that involves sending a monthly letter with readings related to different stages of grief. We have over 3,500 letters a month that have to be put in envelopes, folded, stamped, and mailed. And we have volunteer teams that help do that. So some of these things may be appealing to some of our listeners. But there may also
1: be a concern that I'm not sure I feel qualified to do this or I don't know how to go about doing this. If I'm interested, what do I do, and how do I know I'm going to know how
3: to do the right things? Good question. We have four steps to the process. One, go on to our website, transitionslifecare.org, and click on the volunteer opportunity link. On that, the first step is to go ahead and fill out an online application. Just basic name, address, what your interests are. Second is we have monthly information sessions where people come and spend an hour to learn about all the different programs we have. Our next one is April 4th from six to seven at our Transitions Life Care Campus, 250 Hospice Circle in Raleigh. Um, the next one after that is May 2nd. So the second piece is coming in, getting an hour's worth of information. And then the third step is having an interview with one of our volunteer coordinators. Like I'm, going to, I'm interviewing like I'm trying to get a job. Absolutely. We wanna make sure that it's a good fit for the individual. Um, We have over a dozen different volunteer programs. We want to make sure that we fit the person in the right slot, also based on their availability, what hours they're willing to commit to. And then the fourth step is to come in and do training. We have actually 16 hours of training for every volunteer. They have to go through eight hours of online training, watching various videos and getting information about the basics of hospice care. And then they have a live training that's provided at our campus where we have interactive sessions and training people to become understanding what the role is, how to have appropriate boundaries, how to communicate. And inevitably, for every program, there's paperwork, how to do the (laughs) logs, how to track their time, because we're accountable to report to Medicare the involvement of our volunteers, what happened, where did they go, how much time did they spend, how many miles did they travel. And there's... So for
1: future years, are there also opportunities to continue learning about this as a volunteer?
3: Yes. In fact, that's one of the requirements we have is that all volunteers must have continuing education, which we provide free of charge. If you're an office or administrative volunteer, you have to have eight hours of continuing ed per year. And if you're having any type of patient or family contact, it's 12 hours per year. So we have monthly sessions on our campus, plus we have online capability for people to to learn as they go, so it's pretty time. flexible. Getting, the, getting the training flexible. is pretty flexible to do. Correct. Uh, is there a charge for getting the training? Nope. All of this is provided by our organization, and we are um, constantly having updates to information and keeping our volunteers informed. We also have support groups for our volunteers. So how does that work? People who have obviously, when you have uh, contact with patients and families, you're dealing with grief and loss yourself and so we have a social worker that meets with our volunteers on a voluntary basis they can come in and get counseling um, sharing what their experiences are what are they dealing with emotionally so they can process all of this really helping them take care of themselves so they can continue to take care of others exactly every month we also have connections meetings they're at noon a two-hour meeting from noon to two o'clock once a month and we do evening six to eight p.m. connections meeting, allowing volunteers to connect to each other and get some continuing education.
2: And if folks listening are veterans and they want to get involved in the We Honor Veterans program, is the process similar?
3: Yes, very similar. We do have extra training for the veterans. Mm-hmm. We um, spend a couple of extra hours in training with other veteran volunteers so they can understand what are the steps to doing the
0: recognition ceremonies.
2: Great, wonderful
0: excellent and i guess people can go online to uh, transitionslifecare.org if they want to find out more information about the we honor veterans program as well
3: correct they just click on the veteran of uh, the volunteer opportunities link and there each of our programs have a link to more details on the
0: specific volunteer opportunities. Excellent. Mark Philbrick with Transitions Live Care. Thank you so much for coming by this evening. We really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Well, we are going to take a quick break and when we come back we will have more details about our great advanced directive events that's uh, coming up in just a matter of weeks. Stick around. You're going to want to hear all about it. You are listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Live Care. And I want to remind everyone, if you Want to email the show? You can do that by emailing matters at That's matters at You're listening to News Radio 680 WPTF. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you here on News Radio 680 WPTF. This show is made possible through the support of Transitions Life Care. And with Transitions Life Care, Cooper Linton here. And with Transitions Guiding Lights, Nicole Cleggett i <laughs> you're
2: clay-get. looking real you're Clugget. sweating Clugget. over there i need to sweat on your forehead I, yeah
0: I'm, we're trying to make it. echo there. over here
1: cluck it right Clugget. all right
0: I'm, I'm getting there but the artist formerly known as nicole bruno i'm jason kong and cooper we've uh we're almost there a, a few more weeks here till our advanced directives event is that correct it is absolutely
1: correct, and I, I, I'm i going to pull off a dad joke here. Cause oh, I'm, boy. I told my son. Said, Let me oh, get the boy. rim shot ready. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be. It's going to be a hard battle like a brick. But um, So I'm always you know I'm feeling angelic because I'm always harping about advanced directives. Uh like, oh, oh boy. gosh. You can see my son's <laughs> eyes roll back in his head. He goes, Dad, that's such a dad joke. He said, some of them are good. That, that's not. So um, I understand, but we are always having this conversation, and – it's interesting that we don't we don't really utilize advanced directives um, as much as we should and we just had dr. Fisher on the show talking about the medical order for scope of treatment or most form and that requires a physician to fill out but there's some steps that you don't need a doctor to help you do uh, the advanced directives that include a healthcare power of attorney and living will are the two simplest ways to accomplish that and I was uh, recently talking to someone who said, yeah, it's just a thing for – you know, it's a way for attorneys to make money. I go, well, that's, that's funny because on the 14th of April, the attorneys are coming for free. <laughs> I'm not sure how much <laughs> money they're making. I may feed a couple of them some pizza slices, but we're really wanting to do an. Ev- – we're doing an event on April 14th, and we really want people to come out, get these advance directives done. People say, well, it's confusing. It doesn't have to be. We're actually going to have a class. Uh, it's not lengthy. It's about a 15-minute discussion of what is a healthcare power of attorney, what is a living will, what are the conversations you need to have, uh, and then right after that class, there's going to be a Q&A panel, uh, and on that Q&A panel will be an attorney, uh, again, a free attorney. Nobody's You're not having to pay a thing for this, as well as a physician who is uh, certified in hospice and palliative medicine so that we can have a conversation and have your questions answered. If it's, oh, I wish I could ask a doctor this, you can. I wish I could ask an attorney this, you can. And then you can actually go to another room that day, which is just right next door, and execute the documents. There'll be an attorney there to ask private questions if it's things you didn't want to talk about in a larger room uh, at the panel. Uh, there'll be the notary publics there to uh, help you execute the documents. We'll have the witnesses on site because advanced directives in North Carolina require notary public as well as uh, two witnesses. And so all of that's going to be in place. We even have a volunteer who's going to make the extra copies for you so that you can give a copy to your physician or physicians, your loved ones, etc. cetera.
2: So, do you have to have the people you name potentially to be your healthcare power of attorney with you that day?
1: You don't. Now, we do. You do need to have a discussion with them. Uh, what you don't want to do is, you know, surprise them five years from now. <laughs> Congratulations, you're my healthcare power of attorney. Uh, it's a great time, though, to realize, hey, who do I need to talk to? Get the documents executed, and make sure that that person does have a copy. Of those documents because you're asking them to take on an important role in your life. You need to be sure they have the documentation in place to support it.
2: So, what if I have an advance directive that I completed in another state? Is that a reason to come to make sure that they're transferable? Or I don't, are, they, are they?
1: Well, it varies from state to state. And so, you know, uh, in one of the many disclaimers, I'm not a doctor and I'm not an attorney. I'm also not an electrician or a plumber. Um, there's a lot of things in life I'm not. But if you have questions like, does this document apply in North Carolina, I would come. I would bring that document with you because it can still be a guide for your current wishes. Uh, There'll be attorneys there, and you can ask those questions. But good idea is generally a good idea to update any document you've done in the past. If you've moved from somewhere else, Update the document. It's a free chance to do it. It's not like it's going to cost you any money to come there and execute the new documents. Uh, if you've been divorced in the past few years, probably a good time to check out those documents and be sure they're naming the right people. Uh, if you've had a death in your family, it's a great time to revisit that because the person that was your health care power of attorney may have passed away mm-hmm. uh, or they may have had a decline in their health and no, they're no longer able. To to perform as your advocate in the way that they once could have. So, those types of circumstances um, may initiate you to say, Yeah, I've already done this in the past, but it's a time to do it again.
2: And I remember we had the Secretary of State on here not too long ago, and she was talking about how you can actually register those documents online at the Secretary of State's office. And that's a really great idea, especially as mobile as we all are throughout the country. And you know, if, if for some reason you didn't happen to bring something with you and something needed to be accessed, you can do that no matter where you are.
1: You absolutely can. Secretary Marshall joined us on this show, uh, both as the Secretary of State for North Carolina, but as a former practicing attorney who worked with families in the creation of these documents. So she brings not only a passion for the subject, but actually an expertise in the subject and the Secretary of State's website uh, has a way to register these documents online for a very modest fee. I think it's $10, uh, it's or so. $10 yeah. is yeah. the total fee. Uh, you know, that's less than two trips to Starbucks for some people. And, <laughs> and um, so what happens is those documents are then stored on that website. You have a passcode to get in. Um, And again, it's not like someone can use these documents against you. The real risk is needing these documents and not having them available.
2: And I think for those of you listening that already have these documents and you feel like you're all set, make sure that folks who need to be able to access them know where they are. Oh, my goodness, don't put them in a safe deposit box.
1: Don't leave them at the attorney's I mean, office because yeah. you can't get to them at night. And right? The, the attorney whenever, doesn't need them.
2: Yeah, in a safe deposit box. They can't get into it when you're in a coma in the hospital. So it's just...
1: Look, if, if you want to put your grandmother's wedding band in there, it makes total sense <laughs> to me. But you're probably not going to need her wedding band in an emergency. You are very likely to need those health care. Power of attorneys uh, uh, or living wills, and 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 they're not a document that can be used against you anyway. Um, it's only
2: when you're unable to make decisions, right? It's a
1: document that's silent until you have a need for it, and if you regain your capacity to speak for yourself, and so many people do, the document again becomes silent. Mm-hmm. So it's not like someone has this document and they're now able to go grab your medical records and commit you Mm -hmm. and do terrible things. See, they just can't. It's not legally possible.
2: Well and I think a lot of people are familiar, even if you're going in for a minor procedure in the hospital and they're gonna knock you unconscious for well maybe not knock you, but
1: Yeah, I think (laughs) they're using something more sophisticated these (laughs) days. But but, you know, even for
2: an hour or two they usually have you sign a little something to say, now if something were to happen
0: Who do I And that's
2: temporary and they even say this is a temporary document only for the time you're here (laughs) and so
1: well, and you need something in place for the unexpected. Uh, and these documents can make an enormous difference in caregiver stress as well, because the caregiver is no longer questioning, what am I going to do? You have a plan in place, and you well, know it's what? That's a huge
2: burden not to know. Oh,
1: it's a, it is very burdensome to not know what you're going to do or who's in charge or who thinks they're in charge and really isn't. Mm-hmm it's important to have this in place. So I would encourage folks to come out again April 14th at the Transitions Life Care campus. Uh, That's at uh, 250 Hospice Circle, Raleigh, North Carolina. It's technically in Cary, North Carolina. (laughs) Um, And go to our website at transitionslifecare.org and look for our calendar of events. And on there, you can register because we do, We will like to have some refreshments and things there for you. Uh, there's an opportunity to register either for the 11 o'clock event or the one at 1230. So please click online register, and we'll take care of the heavy lifting when you get there on April
0: 14th. Excellent. Yep, you can go to transitionslifecare.org, head over to the calendar of events section there, and you can find out how to register there. And I want to remind you that uh, that website for the uh, Secretary of State, sosnc.gov, sosnc.gov, if you click on the topics button, uh, the first one that comes up under A is advanced healthcare directives. So, it can't be easier than that. We are just about out of time. Want to thank our guest again, Dr. David Fisher, for joining us this evening. You can uh, go online and go to doctorsmakinghousecalls.com if you want to find out more information about what he's doing as well. And a reminder, you can send us an email if you have a question, at agingmattersatransitionslifecare.com. Aging matters at transitionslifcare.org. On behalf of Nicole Cleggett and Cooper Linton, I am Jason Kong. Thank you so much for listening this evening. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of transitions life care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Have a good night, everyone.